Welcome to Family Bible Hour, a broadcast of the Sunday morning worship services of North Florida Baptist Church in Tallahassee, Florida. I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 5 through 15, the title of the message today. We're studying the Sermon on the Mount. The title of the message today is The Book on Prayer. I did a Google search to see how many books on prayer had been published, and immediately I surmised that there were way too many in number uh, to count. I did find several top five and top ten lists, and they did not all carry the same books. However, there were some books that were held in common. For instance, a book written by, and and most of these uh, that that were held in common as the top books on prayer were written uh, many, many years ago, perhaps hundreds of years ago. The Power of Prayer by R.A. Torrey uh, was on that book. Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds. Uh, was another book that is uh, determined to be one of the greatest books on prayer ever written. There is this book written by Leonard Ravenhill, Why Revival Tarries, a great book on prayer. And then the diary of David Brainerd, a young North American missionary who, uh, <clears throat> who had uh, uh, literally burned out by... Uh, by his uh, work for God and his prayer life. I'm familiar with all of these books and and other great classics. And many other uh, great books have been written and are still being written on prayer. They give us a good deal, excuse me. They give us a good deal of insight into the idea and the importance of prayer. And as good as all of these books are, they can never replace one very short book that was written on prayer because it was written uh, by the one in whose name we pray. It was written by Jesus himself, and it's an integral part of the Sermon on the Mount. I would never discourage anyone from reading a book about prayer. And if you have books about prayer, probably you should go back and reread them. I wouldn't discourage anyone from reading a book on prayer. However, I will tell you that all that we really need to know about prayer is given in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. I begin with verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they seek that they will be heard of for their many words. Be not like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you're forgiving others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, 
neither will your father forgive your trespass. There's so many great things in the Sermon on the Mount, including, uh, or so many great things about the Sermon on the Mount. I think one of the greatest aspects or realities of the Sermon on the Mount is its clarity because of its simplicity. Jesus did not strive to make this a difficult thing to understand. He did not try to make this something uh, too brilliant for the average person. In fact, I think sometimes that people are discouraged from their Bibles because they think that Bibles are written for scholars and that you have to be a scholar in order to understand the Bible. The reality is that God gave the Bible for common people like us. He said in his word that he has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound uh, the wise. That simply indicates to me that that God didn't intend for anyone to have to have a PhD in order to be able to understand the Bible. Now in this town, uh, we have a lot of people who have their PhDs and I'm glad for that. But the reality is that the simplest of folks can understand the Bible and we should be glad for that. Anyone could walk through the verses of today's text and teach a great lesson or preach a sermon. Here's how I see it. It's all about praying and it begins with instruction on measured or measuring our praying. Again in verse 5, and when you pray, you must, must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who is in secret will reward you. Life is full of risks and rewards. If you have a, a retirement account that is not a, uh, that is not a pension fund, uh, then you know about risk and reward. You put money in certain funds and hope that the reward is that those funds come back to you. And even pension funds can be a, a risk and reward. Uh, that's what life is about. We take risk and we either get rewarded or we do get rewarded one way or the other. The question is in whether or not the reward is worth the risk. Is it worth the risk to get the reward? Whenever uh, people go for these Powerball jackpots and, and the payoff is hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes uh, folks will go in and, and buy a lot of tickets and pay a lot of money because they believe that the risk is worth the reward. Uh, here are two inspiring ladies, both of whom uh, took a risk, and they had to decide if the reward was worth it. One lady you will recognize immediately if you've been around this church for any length of time. Many of you remember Carrie McDonald, who spoke to our church, telling of her ordeal in Mosul, Iraq, when her party was attacked and uh, everyone was killed who was in the car except for her. Uh, she was the only person that did not get killed. There were four others killed, including a woman by the name of Karen uh, Wilson. And uh, these ladies were International Mission Board missionaries. And uh, Karen Wilson was age 38, and she had only been saved for eight years. Now, uh, Carrie and Karen and all of the others that served there would write what is called a last letter. 
they would put down on paper how they wanted people to think about what they were doing should they end up uh, dying. And uh, here is what Karen Watson's, uh, Watson's last <clears throat> letter read, and she wrote it to her pastor to be read at her funeral service. She said, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls me, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called uh, to a place. I was called <clears throat> to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was, my ex- was expected. His glory, my reward. His glory, my reward. Then she wrote, the missionary heart. Cares more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dreams more than some think is practical. Expects more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or to success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you and my church family. In his care, salam, peace, Karen. Karen and Carrie, as well as many other missionaries, weigh the reward against the risk or the risk against the reward. Now, I said that because the text was about risking and rewarding. Given in our text are two kinds of prayers. They each had a risk and they each had a reward. One thing that we want to do is to evaluate the intent of our prayer. Why are we praying? Why are we doing what we're doing? You recall that last week we talked about giving and we talked about not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And we talked about the fact that, that if we give to be seen of others or to be noticed or somehow another to earn a badge that we would wear and that we would have, that we had our reward and there was no further reward waiting for us. Well, the risk and reward of prayer is very much the same thing. We have to ask ourselves, why do we pray? What is our purpose in praying? What is the risk and reward? And there's some measure in that. Let me talk first of all about the bad news, and that is uh, the hypocrites measure. And those people who are hypocrites who pray have a measure of reward, and it's in accordance to really what they are expecting. Jesus said that the hypocrites pray to be seen, and they pray to be heard. They like to stand on the street corner and, and uh, draw attention to themselves. Whenever I uh, was reading this and, and thinking about this, my thought first went to the sign spinners. You know those people out in front of the gold and uh, stores and uh, <clears throat> where they buy your gold and they stand out there and they dance and they spin a, an arrow sign and they, they point that we buy gold and they point back to the thing and, and, and they all, they're drawing attention to themselves. And clearly they all have a routine as to how they do it. And, and you go in other cities, it's the same story everywhere. And some people have become quite professional at this. I think the whole point of these guys, uh, and perhaps ladies too, being out in front of the store is to draw attention to the store. There's the risk of being out there and making a fool of yourself. There is the reward of people noticing the store and the store getting more gold. I doubt seriously, by the way, that those are the owners of the stores uh, that are out there. It's, It's, I wouldn't think that many of them would run the risk for that reward. But sometimes people do a lot of things that uh, they should do for other purposes, but they really do for the sake of drawing attention to themselves. And sad to say, praying is one of them. 
when people pray to bring attention to themselves, the risk is the reward. Jesus says that they are not really looking for an answer from God. They are wanting to be noticed, and, and they do get noticed. And so, in some way, their prayer is answered. If you pray to be noticed, if, if you pray to, to cause everybody to draw attention on yourself or on you, and, uh, and you finish your prayer, regardless of what you said in your prayer, your prayer was answered because you prayed to be noticed. And, and that is the way that the hypocrite prayed. I hope none of you are that way. And I'm not saying that any of you are that way. But I will say this, that there are still people who pray in that matter, manner. So listening to this, we have to realize that the petition of the prayer of the hypocrite is overshadowed by the purpose of the prayer. The purpose of the prayer was not the petition. The purpose of the prayer was the publicity. I can get noticed. I can be uh, published for this prayer. I can be famous for this prayer. So there's the hypocrite's measure. Then secondly, there is the humble measure. Jesus goes on to tell us that humble prayer looks like and what it looks like and how it's rewarded. Uh, first, it is a prayer from the, uh, the created to the creator. It is a prayer that expresses to the creator that we know that we're the created and we are bowing ourselves humbly before him. This is the way that most of us pray most of the time. Occasionally we may pray in a, a gathering, but most often we pray privately. And there's nothing wrong with public prayer. We'll have a public prayer here in just a few moments. But when we have the public prayer, we're not praying to be seen. We're praying this public prayer as a, a gathering prayer, which is, has biblical precedence as well. Even when we pray in a gathering, it's not to be seen, but simply to offer to the Lord the acknowledgement of His presence and to request His blessings. Our prayers are most often as they should be, in private and in the privacy of our hearts. Most of my prayers are that way. You know that I have a friend who is uh, in prison today up in Michigan. I've told you about this guy before, and I won't go all into it, but this is a friend of mine. He is in prison and, uh, because he did something wrong. And uh, he has, his wife sent to me a, a small uh, ink pen that was made from wood. And uh, he had a, a friend who would turn these ink pens on a lathe. And she sent one of these pens to me and to a few other friends. And she said, I'm just asking you to uh, take this pen and put it on your desk. And when you uh, pick it up to use it, please remember Bo in prayer. That's what he asked that you do. And so it is on my desk. And whenever I see it or I pick it up, I whisper a prayer from my heart to God's ears because I want to pray for Bo. Most of our praying is that way. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with praying like that any more than there's anything wrong with standing in a service and praying. However, in both cases, they are to be prayed with a humble measure. The reward from humble prayer is not the reward of being seen, but it's the reward of being blessed. The beauty of humble prayer is to be blessed by God. In fact, that's what Jesus said, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The King James Version says, will reward you <clears throat> openly. Now, that sounds like a promise to me that if we approach the Lord in a humble manner and we speak to Him in a humble manner, that He's going to answer us and He's going to grant to us our request. He's going to reward us our request. So then, 
we measure our praying in accordance with what we want to get out of it. You have to ask yourself, what do I want to get out of prayer? If we want to be noticed, then we pray to get ourselves noticed. There's nothing uh, from God in these kinds of prayers, but then again, that really isn't the point of those prayers. We're praying uh, to be noticed. Obviously, we do not want to pray in this manner. We want to have a meaningful prayer life, so we try to pray humbly. But there are other things to understand regarding a meaningful prayer life. And that's the second point. First of all, there's measured praying. And secondly, there's meaningful praying going on in verse 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Uh, Be not like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. A few weeks ago, I was, uh, my wife and I attended Grandparents Day at North Florida Christian School because our oldest grandson uh, is uh, in K-4 at North Florida Christian School. And Grandparents Day was a, a wonderful time, and part of it included our going and sitting in their classroom and having uh, lunch with them in the classroom. They brought lunch in, and we had that lunch in the classroom. And I, I recall uh, that the, uh, uh, when it came time to pray, his teacher said, okay, it's time to pray. Everybody <clears throat> bow your heads, close your eyes, and fold your hands. And so uh, all of them bowed their heads, and all of them folded their hands, and most of them closed their eyes. Uh, Not all of them. I wasn't one of them because I was looking around. But they bowed their heads, and they sang their prayer. They sang the little song, God our Father, God our Father, we give thanks. And they sang that, and it was the sweetest thing. And uh, I just absolutely loved it. In fact, last evening, I was over at... uh, my uh, son and daughter-in-law's house and, and uh, where uh, Bradford and Harper are and, and it came time for us to eat dinner and uh, uh, his daddy asked him, said, Bradford, would you like to pray? And I was so happy, uh, Nathan, when you asked him that and he folded his hands and he sang the God Our Father song and that just thrilled me to no end. I was so happy uh, for that. Now let me say something to you. That is a memorized prayer. And, and you say, well, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. No, no, no. You have to teach a child to pray. And when you teach children to pray, you teach them uh, the prayers of childhood life. Uh, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food, which never did rhyme, uh, <clears throat> unless you pronounce food, food. Uh, but uh, but there's, there's various things. Uh, and I don't think that Jesus intended for children to learn to pray without the benefit and the blessing of those little childlike prayers. That's not what he was talking about there. However, if we never move on to meaningful petitions, we're likely to become those people who are only praying ceremoniously. And, and that, I believe that is a, a serious issue regarding our, our spiritual walk, is that sometimes the spiritual things of life we only do ceremoniously. Um, I oftentimes refer to, and and hopefully I do it with a loving heart, I refer to people who are ceremonial believers or ceremonial church members. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, They attend church ceremoniously. Uh, They invite God into their gathering ceremoniously. If there's going to be a wedding, if there's going to be a funeral, if there's going to be something along those lines, then that's ceremoniously, they want to make sure that God is a part of that or that they are part of God. 
uh, in, in those things. I, I don't believe that God is teaching that our prayers should be ceremonious. I think he teaches that they should be meaningful. They should be humble and they should be meaningful. Uh, the Bible says that men ought always to pray. And that's teaching us that we should live in a state of prayer, that we should continually uh, pray. And those prayers should be meaningful. Now, how do you get to a meaningful prayer? Well, it's by, by mastering prayer, by understanding the mastery or masterful praying, if you will. Coach Bowden told me something the other day, one of the funniest stories that I've ever heard him tell. Uh, some of you, uh, it's about a coach that he knew, and some of you would know this coach too. I'm not going to call his name, uh, although you'll figure it out if you've been around for a while. The team had just come in after a game on the road, and the team had played Miami, University of Miami. And they were playing on the road, and their custom was that when they came in, that uh, the chaplain would pray, and then they would go and either get on the bus or do whatever they needed to do to, to move on to the next place. But the very first thing that they did when they came in after uh, the game was over is that the chaplain for the team uh, prayed, which is very good practice. And, and this predated Coach Bowden's leadership days. Coach Bowden was not yet the head coach, but he was there. And uh, Coach said that uh, the team got in and uh, all the coaches and the team got in and somehow or another the chaplain of the team got locked out and wasn't inside the locker room. And so uh, all the coaches were in there and the head coach was in there, and, and, uh, uh, but the chaplain wasn't in there. And the head coach started looking around for the chaplain. And uh, he says, anybody seen the chaplain? Then nobody's seen the chaplain. He said, well, okay, I'll do the prayer. And when he said that he would do the prayer, Coach Bowden looked over at the coach next to him and said, I'll bet you 10 bucks he doesn't know the prayer. And the guy said, you're on. And so the coach bowed his head and he said, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord. Coach Bowden reached in his pocket and gave the guy 10 and said, well, I guess he did remember it. <laughs> Sometimes our prayer is, really isn't very masterful, is it? But Jesus offers what we've come to know as, as the, the Lord's prayer. And as I mentioned, it's often repeated in churches and other places. And now, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with uh, saying the Lord's Prayer. But it was intended to be a model prayer. It wasn't intended to be the end of our prayer. And here is the model for it. Verse 9, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as as we also forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, what you are missing uh, here are the words, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let me speak to that just a moment so that any confusion might be taken away. Those and similar words are in the King James Version. They're in the New King James Version. They're in the New American Standard Version, and they're in the Holman Edition of the Bible and perhaps others. The notation in the uh, New American Standard and the Holman is uh, that the clause was not found <clears throat> in the early manuscripts, even though they included it. Now, I'm sure this is why both the NIV and the ESV uh, leave it off, is because that clause or that phrase was not found in the early manuscripts. Let me speak to that for just a moment, just to put us all on the same page. 
in, in, more, in the more than 2,000 years since the birth of Jesus, the Bible has gone through many interpretations, with the exception of a few prejudiced interpretations. And there were prejudiced interpretations. No way around it. Sometimes people will interpret the Bible and try to make it a politically correct Bible. They'll try to uh, take the gender out of it and various <clears throat> things like that. And other than that in those kinds of things, the interpretations were done not from an agenda of trying to change the meaning of Scripture. Most have tried to return back to the original manuscripts instead of trying to interpret what something that was previously interpreted. They try to go back as close as they can to the early uh, manuscripts and, and those documents nearest them, and that's a very tedious task. Sometimes it's discovered that the interpreters of one version added phrasing or words for clarity without the intent of changing the meaning. It happens all the time. Uh, it happened all the time. For instance, in the King James Version, many of you have a King James Version. If you look down right now at your King James Version Bible, probably on the page that you're on, uh, there are some italicized words. There's probably, uh, you'll read along, and you'll notice, and you'll say, wow, that word is in italics. Why is that word in italics? Well, the reason that word's in italics is because that was not something that was brought over from the early manuscripts, but more like uh, a clarification note, <clears throat> if you will, by the, uh, by the interpreters. It, it did not, in, in any case that I know of, change the meaning of Scripture. It just, <clears throat> it was a clarification. Now, I said all that to say this. <clears throat> the phrase that is in question here is probably not in italics in the King James Version. However, the phrase in question is one of those phrases that we're talking about. It was added for the point of clarity. Now, there's nothing at all wrong with the word, or, and, and there's nothing inconsistent that would cause this to be uh, inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. It is indeed true that, that, uh, it, that it should uh, be said if not read, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, people uh, pray in certain patterns over the years. Uh, for instance, I've heard <clears throat> there was a period of time where people were praying, and I've done this at the end of the, and some of you've heard this, at the end of the prayer, you pray in Jesus' name, and I've heard uh, people pray like this. They've, they've said, and we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. You ever heard somebody uh, say that at the end of their prayer? We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Absolutely nothing and everything right about that. Uh, Jesus is a strong name. Jesus has a strong name. Uh, I, I have a friend up in Woodstock, Georgia. He's a pastor there, Johnny Hunt. Whenever Johnny Hunt prays, he bows his head, and the first words out of his mouth is, Lord, with grateful hearts. That's the first thing that he says. Uh, Perry, you've heard him say that many, many times with grateful hearts. A lot of his friends and people around him now, they've picked up on that and they have prayed with grateful hearts. There's nothing wrong with that any more than there's anything wrong with for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'm just clarifying for you if I can why it may not show up in your NIV or your ESV, but it shows up in the King James Version and so on. There's nothing wrong with your Bible, nothing wrong with any of those versions of Bible. It was simply a clarification that the King James Version and others kept in that the ESV and the NIV 
uh, uh, did not include. Uh, this is the Word of God. You don't have to worry about that. This is the Word of God. And unless you've got a, a Jim and Judy uh, or a Jack and Jill or uh, a, um, some other uh, political type Bible, you don't have to worry about anything. Now, I said all that, say this. It took a little more time than I meant to. But in this prayer, we find eight elements, and I want to show you these eight elements of prayer. And this is what masterful praying is all about. First of all, it starts with faith. Our Father in heaven, or our Father who art in heaven, as the KJV says. It reminds us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There are many people who will not pray to God because they cannot see Him. Uh, People of faith pray to God because because they cannot see Him. I'm not going to pray to one of you, but I will pray to a God who I cannot see, who is so powerful and so awesome and so uh, mighty. Uh, His his power is so great and His influence uh, is there every moment of our day. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that uh, for we know, th- and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, I believe that day by day. And so when I pray, I pray by faith. I know that God has a purpose in my life, for my life, with my life, to my life, and through my life. That's God has a purpose in my life. When you pray, one of the first things you want to do is make sure that you're in faith praying that there is a God who hears you. Then there's worship. Worship is a part of prayer. The next phrase says, hallowed be your name. When we come to God in faith, we do so in worship. We consecrate the name of God or we make the name of God holy. We're knocking on the door of a great house and we're hoping to come in and make a request of the one who answers the door. And when we do that, we wipe our feet and we brush through our hair and we straighten our clothes and we square our shoulders and we come before Him in the most respectful and reverent and adoring way because we are coming into the presence of God. And so when we come into the presence of God, we come into the presence of God with a hallowed sense of His name. We don't come in, and I'm not trying to be trite, although there is certainly this trite spirit that permeates our world today. Hey, God, dude, what's up? We don't come in like that. We come before the Lord, our Father. Hallowed be your name. There is faith and there's worship. And then there's expectation. There's a difference in how we communicate with those we expect to see again and those that we don't expect to see again. An element of this prayer is the acknowledgement of the certainty of our future. Your kingdom come. Not only do we pray that way, but we should expect Him to come at any moment. And not only that, we should pray with a sense of submission. I'm giving you eight ways or eight steps to masterful praying. Not that you might memorize the Lord's Prayer, although it's a wonderful thing to do. And not that you might limit your praying to what the Lord prayed, although what the Lord prayed is perfect. But I'm asking you to see these eight elements in prayer. And the next element is the word submission. Jesus says that those who pray for the kingdom to come should understand and agree to God's will now. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Some of you may remember in 2005, I preached a series of sermons on the kingdom of God. And I based it on this right here. I talked about how that 
uh, Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And I went through primarily the book of Matthew and I looked at all of the times that the word kingdom was mentioned and where it says the kingdom is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of God is like. And some of you'll remember that. And I came back and I said, so if his kingdom is to be on heaven, uh, on earth as it is in heaven, and he says his kingdom is like this, then this is the way we ought to raise kingdom children. This is the way we ought to do kingdom worship. This ought to be kingdom giving, and so forth and so on. If you take a walk through uh, the verses of Matthew, you learn a lot about how we're to live our lives in submission to God on earth as it will be in heaven. Now, once we state our faith and offer our worship and reveal our expectation and confirm our submission, then it is time for our petition. Then we start asking. Now, most of us go right to it. And let me say this to you. Sometimes going right to it is okay. If I see a car coming uh, in my direction and uh, uh, the car is, is uh, heading straight at me and is in my lane, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to uh, try to get out of the way of that car and I'm going to pray quick. I doubt seriously that I start our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Probably it'll be, oh God, help me. It, it'll probably be just help me. I remember one time years, years ago, I, I did the uh, Richard Petty experience. And uh, it was uh, you, for some birthday, I, I can't remember which birthday it was, but you, you gave me the Richard Petty experience where I went to Daytona International Speedways. And I raced that car around the track 16 laps. And I remember that I got in that Dale Earnhardt corner where he was killed in that Dale Earnhardt corner. And I thought about that Dale Earnhardt corner every time and went around. I saw that Dale Earnhardt corner. Oh, it just, and there was a little, it may have been just psychosomatic, but I felt the, the rear end of the car just kind of bounced just a little bit. My top speed was 153 miles an hour. I was, I was going pretty good. And <clears throat> after a few laps and, and getting more and more familiar with it, you know how sometimes on the interstate you go brain dead and, and you're, you know, you wake up somewhere and you say, where have I been the last 20 miles? I don't know exactly what that is. I can't explain it, but I know how scary it is. And I remember that I was coming down the back straightaway, and I was uh, in the curve heading to the Dale Earnhardt corner. And in the middle of that curve, I realized that I'd had one of those interstate blackout moments. And I, I was trying to remember when was the last time I cognizantly thought about driving that race car that I was driving up to 153 miles an hour. And, and it scared me so badly. And I held on to that steering wheel as tight as I could. And I began to pray like this. Oh, Jesus, don't let me go to sleep. Oh, Jesus, don't let me go to sleep. Oh, Jesus, don't let me go to sleep. Make me pay attention. Make me pay attention. Make me pay attention. And that's exactly what I said. You say, well, isn't that vain repetition? I'm going to tell you something. There wasn't anything vain about that at all. I was absolutely serious. I was almost dead serious, to tell you the truth. <clears throat> we make our petitions to him. We ask in, in his uh, name. And whatever you ask in my name, Jesus said, uh, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If uh, you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And when we offer our petition, they should be accompanied accompanied by the sincerest of confession. 
and forgive our debts. None of us should go to the, to the Lord in prayer as the Pharisee would and say, I thank God that I'm not as other people. We should go humbly before the Lord. Forgive us. Look, and the, at the end of the day, none of us are all that hot. At the end of the day, none of us are all that godly. At the end of the day, none of us are deserving of anything. The only reason that we can go to the Lord in prayer is because the Jesus who spoke this Sermon on the Mount sacrificed his blood for us on the cross of Calvary, died and rose again the third day, that we might have a boldness before the Father. It's the only reason. Don't ever pray to God and say, Lord, I... I hope you'll take a look at my life and answer this question, answer this prayer request. I don't want God to take a look at my life answering the prayer request. I want him to take a look at Jesus Christ. I want to come in the name of Jesus. I want to come in the power of Jesus. I want to confess. I want to be absolutely honest and right and as holy before him as I can possibly be. And the only way to do that is to come in the holy righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then there's after confession, and part of confession is compassion. Not only are we to uh, have our debts forgiven, but we say, as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's a very revealing and a somewhat restricting thing. If I could have you to come and pray today, wouldn't do this, but if I could have you to come and pray today, and as you pray... Flash the people's pictures in front of you on the screen at the back of the auditorium and behind me who have really done you wrong in your life. The people you're really sick of and you don't really care for. And bring you to this part of the Lord's Prayer where that there is confession and there is compassion. You say, now I want you to forgive me of my trespasses as I forgive those who have trespassed against me. Let me ask the question, how would that go for you? It's not unusual for us to find it hard to forgive because of the size or the nature of the transgression that someone has committed against us. We just can't get over what they said or what they did or to the extent that they harmed us. That being said, we're asking God, whose own son Jesus was crucified for our transgression, to forgive us those same transgressions. Compassion is a part of prayer. And then finally, there is the acknowledgement of our dependence. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Any of us who will be perfectly honest have to admit that we are a tire full of patches. None of us are running on good tread through our lives and through the decisions of our lives and the sins of our lives. We've worn the tread down and over and over again, God has renewed us. We've been punctured and patched so many times that we proceed with the caution of one about to implode or explode at any given time. Jesus adds something at the end of all of this. In verse 14, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Father, uh, Heavenly Father, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There are eight elements to the mastery of praying. 
And to satisfy the way most of us who memorize the Lord's Prayer, there is this acknowledgement, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to bring this to a close today. We've looked at prayer. We're thinking about our own prayer life. We're thinking about the effectiveness of it, the honesty of it. And I think honesty may be a better word than effectiveness. I'd like to read you two quotes on prayer, and with this, the service or the message is ended. The value of persistent prayer is not that he will hear us, but that we will finally hear him. And then finally, in prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. I don't think that anyone in here wants to have a half-hearted prayer life. There's not a soul in here who, when you go to the Lord, you do not want the Lord to really hear and answer your prayer. And this morning, I invite you to think about one of those eight elements. You may have most of them right, but a couple or a few of them have spoken to your heart. I want to ask you to bring those elements to the altar today. And I want you to come before God in faith and worship and say, Lord, I come asking you to make my prayer life all that a prayer life should be in one who is forgiven like me. Maybe you do not know for sure that Jesus Christ is your personal Savior and Lord. And you've come to this service today and, and your, your intent in being here was to worship in the house of God and thank you for being here. But in the course of being here, you've looked about and you've said, I, I'm missing something in my life. And what is it? Well, it could be that you've never really given your life to Jesus Christ. I encourage you today to give your life to Jesus Christ. Give yourself to him. Pastor Ray, how would I ever do such a thing? It'll be my privilege or someone else's who helps us at the altar to share with you how you can simply give your life to Jesus Christ and receive his sacrifice for your own. I invite you to come today. Bring your humility to the altar faith, acknowledge and worship Him and ask Him to make your prayers fit the model. Let's bow our heads for prayer. You've been listening to the Family Bible Hour, a broadcast ministry of North Florida Baptist Church in Tallahassee, Florida with your speaker, Dr. Randy Ray. Dr. Ray invites you to join him next week for the Family Bible Hour.